So for those of you who don't know me, my name's Will Inboden, and I'm uh, the director of the Clement Center and a professor here at UT Austin, um, and I'm one of the co-conveners of the conference today. And I'm Bobby Chesney, director of the Strauss Center. In the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks, the government undertook the most sweeping and, to some people's mind, the most contested reorganization of the intelligence community that we had seen since 1947 and the creation of the Central Intelligence Agency. It's been 13 years since the 9-11 attacks, and it has been a decade since the law that created the Office of the Director of National Intelligence and the National Counterterrorism Center. In that time, we have been fortunate in many respects. We have been comparatively and relatively fortunate, especially in terms of the threat of terrorist attacks within our homeland. But one need only glance at the headlines to appreciate that the threat remains. Al-Qaeda has proliferated. It has spawned franchises. It's even spawned competitors in the form of the Islamic State. At the same time, we uh, know from the headlines of the past year and a quarter that the disruptive impact of technological change has also complicated the, the machinery and the policy framework of intelligence gathering, all of which underscores the timeliness, the ripeness of this conference. It is past time to assess the course of intelligence organization reform after 10 years' experience. What are we doing well? What's not working well? And where should we go from here? The, uh, the idea for this conference actually originates with a book. Uh, one of our speakers and main organizers, uh, Michael Allen, a former colleague of mine at the uh, National Security Council in the uh, Bush White House, wrote this book, Blinking Red. Promises the only book plug you're going to get this, uh, this weekend. And it's based on Michael's experiences at the White House, uh, working for Steve Hadley, um, helping to negotiate the, the provisions and the passage of the law. Um, and we commend the book to all of you. Uh, what happened is several months ago we brought Michael out here to give a talk on the book, and at the conclusion of the talk, we realized there's a great opportunity to do a full-on conference looking at um, the, the background of the law, uh, what's worked and what, uh, what hasn't. We also want to offer some special thanks to our indispensable partner organization in this, the Intelligence and National Security Alliance. You'll see their banner here, and you'll be hearing from uh, their head ambassador, Joe, Joe Detrani, um, and also our co-sponsor, Raytheon. You'll also be hearing from Raytheon more throughout the conference. And we're also especially honored to host this gathering here at UT Austin. Uh, this isn't just a one-off event. It's part of a new program we've launched this year, the Intelligence Studies Project. Uh, the ISP capitalizes on UT's existing strengths. Uh, for example, we're one of only two, country, uh, two universities in the country, the other one being Columbia, to have a full-time CIA, CIA officer in residence. And he's here today, Paul, Paul Pope. Um, we're also proud to announce today that following three decades with the CIA's clandestine service, um, Steve Slick, a former colleague of mine, will be joining UT in January as the inaugural director of the Intelligence Studies Project, as well as a professor at the LBJ School. You'll also be hearing from Steve tomorrow at the conference. So our aim is really to make UT Austin the premier institution outside the Beltway for research and teaching on intelligence and national security policy. Now we're honored to introduce the man without whom none of this would have happened, um, who's been a visionary leader, a devoted supporter of the Clements and Strauss Centers, our captain and our president, Bill Powers. Well, thank you all, and thank you, Bobby, and thank you, Will. Um, And let me, Bobby and Will, through you, not just give you my personal thanks, but my thanks to the Strauss Center and to the Clement Center 
not just for organizing this wonderful and important conference, but for all you're doing in the area of national security, but uh, global policy studies at the university. You've, you've transformed our campus, and we're very, very grateful for that. And to all of you who are joining us uh, today and for this conference, let me give you a very special welcome to the 40 Acres. We are thrilled to have you here for this very, very important event. You know, I'm never more proud of UT than at moments just like this, when we bring together uh, world leaders and world experts to discuss something of such critical importance to our future, and certainly national security is that. Uh, the Strauss Center and the Clement Center, as you heard just a moment ago, uh, have done extremely important work and will continue to do extremely important work in national security. And they've done that independently. Uh, they are now collaborating and are doing it synergistically. Uh, and the university is better for those efforts. And again, I want to thank Bobby and Will and everybody at the Strauss Center and the Clement Center for what you're doing. Uh, it's a special honor to welcome here also James Clapper, our Director of National Intelligence. Director Clapper, uh, I want to give you a spe special welcome to the 40 Acres, and let me take this opportunity both on behalf of the university and personally to thank you for a long and distinguished service to America. Thank you. We'll be hearing from Director Clapper in a moment, but first we are all in for a real treat. And it is my pleasure and my privilege and my true privilege to introduce our next speaker, Admiral Bill McRaven. And Admiral, I'm also thrilled to be able to maybe a bit prematurely welcome you to the campus as Chancellor Bill McRaven. As we all know, and history will long remember, uh, Admiral McRaven was the commander of the force that brought to justice the world's most wanted terrorists. So Admiral McRaven is a world historical figure. And Admiral, let me thank you again on behalf of the university and personally for that and for your long and distinguished service to our country. <clears throat> and Admiral, we like to think, I think correctly, that your career started right here as a Texas Longhorn. He was born in North Carolina in 1955 and was raised in San Antonio. Bill McRaven came to UT in the 1970s on a track scholarship. And in 1977, he earned his bachelor's degree in journalism. And for more than 33 years, he quietly rose through the ranks of the Navy, distinguishing himself as an effective commander of special operations. All of that until he was charged with America's most important military mission, Operation Neptune Spear. And today, we have the honor of hearing his thoughts on the national security landscape 
that he had such a profound role in shaping. So it is my true honor and privilege to introduce a great American hero, an American leader, a great Texan, and a great Longhorn, Admiral Bill McRae. Admiral, we like to say at the University of Texas at Austin that what starts here changes the world. I like it. Catchy phrase. <laughs> well, I think we're just going to replace the phrase and put a picture of you on it from now on. Uh, we want to say welcome home. Thanks. Thanks, Bobby. Uh, well, so, Admiral, we've got a number of questions we thought we could go over with you, but you know, feel free to weave in uh, here any of your general thoughts on, on uh, coming back on this occasion. But uh, First, you've been on the front lines of the War on Terror since September 11th, 2001. Um, as you look back over the 13 years since then, how do you evaluate our country's successes and failures? Yeah, well, first, uh, Will, Bobby, let me uh, echo uh, President Powers' comments. What a magnificent uh, event you guys are putting on here. Uh, I mean, this is really world class. Uh, and I thank you for inviting me and uh, for the Intelligence National Security Alliance. Joe, great to have you partnered with the Clements and the Strauss Center. And I'll tell you, part of the reason I came was uh, not only to have an opportunity to uh, spend some time with you today, but also it's like a, a, an old uh, family reunion. I look and see Steve Hadley, who I uh, worked for in the National Security Council from 2001 to 2003 when Steve was the Deputy National Security Advisor. And, uh, of course, uh, Bobby Enman. Uh, but it's across the board. Your subject matter experts that you have brought to this conference are absolutely world class. From the Director of National Intelligence, uh, Jim Clapper, and I know you've got John Negroponte and, and Mike McConnell coming as well. I see John McLaughlin in the audience, Steve Slick, who uh, he and I spent a lot of time together. David Shedd, Steve Cambone. Uh, you've got uh, Nick Rasmussen and uh, Juan Zarate. And, I mean, it is an all-star cast. So I want to congratulate you for, for pulling this together. Thank you. Um, I, I read, at least in my brief uh, uh, intro piece, was that you wanted to find out whether or not we were smarter and safer. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the purpose of the conference as a result of what's happened over the last 13 years and in particular the last 10 years with the establishment of the DNI and, the, and NCTC, are we smarter and safer? And I would tell you, I absolutely think we are both smarter and safer. I think part two of that, though, is are we smart enough and safe enough? And I think You'll figure that piece out, I think, as you go through the next couple of days. Um, but I, I want to just have a couple of vignettes uh, before I tackle your questions. Uh, and again, Steve Hadley will remember this in spades. When, when I first got to the uh, National Security Council staff in October of 2001, uh, right after the events of 9-11, we had a threat matrix. And uh, General Wayne Downing, who I worked for, who uh, had been brought in to run the Office of Combating Terrorism, was responsible to Steve and to Dr. Rice to kind of oversee the threat matrix. And every morning, we would have a list of threats to the homeland. And I remember sitting in on these, uh, these briefings, uh, and there was FBI and CIA and State Department, all the intel communities that were there. There was Coast Guard, the National Security Agency. And uh, the sit room back then was a lot smaller than it is today. But we did have a little Hollywood Squares thing going. But, of course, each picture looked about this big. So you couldn't always tell who was on the screen. But I remember sitting in those meetings, and General Downing would look at the list, and he'd say, uh, okay, here's our first uh, you know, individual on the threat matrix. Uh, FBI, what do you have on that? And the FBI would say, uh, General, we're, uh, we're tracking that. 
Drill down and say, yeah, that's great. Uh, CI, what do you got? Uh, nothing to report today, sir. Uh, NSA, uh, sir, nothing to report today. And we go down the list, and nobody was talking to anybody. There was concern about you know, sensitive law enforcement information. There was uh, concerns about human intelligence and how you pass that. And, and again, the frustration level, I think, amongst certainly the staff at the National Security Council and our ability to support the president and, uh, and the policymakers was, was pretty high because we couldn't seem to bring the agencies together to talk. I will, I will give Coast Guard credit. They, Coast Guard did talk. I think they were trying to get as much information as they could. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but when you take a look at where we are today, and I was just sitting in uh, with General Clapper and some of the students, and our interagency process today is the finest in the world by magnitudes of tens or hundreds. It's just absolutely magnificent. The relationship between the FBI and the CIA, what DNI has done to bring the intel community together, our ability to see intelligence and to move it down to the federal and the state and the local law enforcement unparalleled. Those sorts of things did not happen at the beginning of 2001. Um, second vignette on the National Counterterrorism Center. I had been uh, promoted to one star, and I was the deputy at the Joint Special Operations Command. And my four-star boss at the time, General Brown, calls me up and he says, Hey, Bill, I'd like you to go up and interview for the job as the director of the strategic and operations plans at this new thing they're standing up called NCTC. And I said, Yeah, but I don't want the job. I, I kind of like what I'm doing. He goes, I don't care. I want you to go up, and I want you to interview for the job. I said, yep, I don't like the job. I don't want the job. But being the good soldier that I was, I went up, and he said, you're going to meet with some guy up there, former CIA guy, or I'm not sure. His last name's Brennan. And, uh, and he runs this thing called the TTIC, the Terrorist Threat Interdiction Center or Cell. So I got up, and I spent about an hour and a half with John Brennan. He knew I had spent uh, two years on the NSC staff. And he said, look, we're standing up this thing called NCTC. You know, what, what are your thoughts on this? And I said, well, first and foremost, if you are going to be effective, you need to be a player at the table. You've got to make sure you are at the deputies committee meeting and the principals committee meetings, and you've got to have an entree into the Oval. And if you don't have that, then it doesn't make any difference how you are formed. You will never be effective. And John Brennan, to his credit, as he passed it off to Scott Redd and then to Mike Leiter and then to Matt Olson, uh, I mean, you have seen the evolution of NCTC in a way that I think is incredibly impressive. And not only do they have a seat at the table, you know, they are at the front table and they are making, again, great inroads, I think, in terms of how they are looking at the national level intelligence, how they are passing the national level intelligence. So when, when we ask ourselves, are we smarter and safer, uh, I think the, the answer is absolutely we are. Are we smart enough and safe enough? We can have that conversation. Mm -hmm. So with that, I'll... Uh... Okay. Well, let me ask if I could then a follow-up question. Uh, so obviously, um, the good news is since 9-11, we haven't suffered another large-scale attack on the homeland. Uh, at the same time, uh, it seems that the terrorist threat is a little different today than it, than it was 13 years ago. How, how has the terrorist threat evolved in those 13 years? Well, certainly, you know, we were looking at core al-Qaeda uh, after 9-11. And core al-Qaeda at the time was in Afghanistan, and it was in Pakistan. And I, I think when you look at where we are today... The intel community, and in particular the agency, has done just a magnificent job of, uh, of really degrading core al-Qaeda to the point where I'm reluctant to say they're ineffective, they're not ineffective, uh, but core al-Qaeda is nothing like it was uh, even a couple of years ago. So uh, I give great credit to, again, the intel community and the military for their role in doing that. 
But uh, as has been pointed out several times, al-Qaeda and this extremist brand of Islam has metastasized a number of times over. So now you have these franchise organizations and al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, and al-Qaeda in the Islamic lands of the Maghreb, and al-Qaeda in Iraq, and al-Qaeda in ISIL or ISIS. Uh, these are all, all al-Qaeda franchises. So clearly, as I said, the, I think we're smarter and I think we're safer. There are more threats out there. And, uh, and I do think we've got to make sure that we continue to put pressure on these uh, elements that are out there because if you give them an opportunity to grow, they will grow. You uh, draw our attention to the geographic spread of these threats. In a lot of these places, we usually act by, with, and through host state security services and, and, and liaison partners. Can you explain a little bit about how, how America can exercise uh, that particular tool of, of, of security and what the limits of it are, limiting the ability to act by, with, and through other entities? Yeah, so th- this is an old, from a special operations standpoint, the Army Green Berets, this is really in their DNA. Uh, they have always been the force in the military, at least, that built our allied capabilities or built a guerrilla capability that might be going against an entrenched uh, enemy government. And, and so we in the special operations community have learned a lot from how they do business. And you see the work that uh, the broader military did, but I'm very proud of the special operations community, both in Iraq and Afghanistan, and how we built a very capable CT force both in Iraq and Afghanistan by, with, and through. And, and by that, Bobby, this is really about making sure that the host nation can take care of its own problems. Uh, what we don't want to do is always have the U.S. in the lead, because then after a while, they expect you always to be there with manpower, with money, and they're not taking care of their own security problems. And every nation, every sovereign nation, wants its own security forces to handle its own security problems. So um, this is the importance of buy with through. If you do it well, and it is not something that comes quickly. So I think there are a lot of folks uh, out there who think, well, can you create a competent, capable force in six months? No. In a year? No. In two years? Two years you can get close. But frankly, it's a long-term proposition. If you want to create a force that is capable, that understands its relationship to the civil leadership, and we stress this in the by, with, and through piece, there are a couple things we do before we ever begin to teach the military the basics of, you know, shoot, move, and communicate. We talk about civilian control of the military and how very, very important that piece is. We talk about universal rights and civil liberties. That that may sound a little strange, but let me tell you, this is the fundamental building block to everything that is by, with, and through. Because if they fail to understand that piece of it, their relationship with the elected government, if they fail to understand that piece of it, then you build a force that, frankly, will work against the reputation of the United States and the reputation within the country. You know, we're, we're talking about acting by, with, and through others, but of course sometimes we are there on the ground in, in sure. a large way. And one of the things that's most remarkable about the, the systems we developed, especially in Iraq, the ability to integrate real-time intelligence with operations and create a, a tight cycle that actually was moving quicker than the enemy could decide and, and make, take actions. And that seemed like something very special that emerged from the ground up by way of intelligence integration that didn't come from Washington. It, it came right. from the grassroots. Is that something that we now have locked in, or is there some risk that that will atrophy over time as we shift to other types of operations? Yeah, I think there's absolutely a risk that it could atrophy. Um, and, and to kind of broaden the question a little bit, uh, or maybe broaden the answer, 
This, a lot of this started in Iraq, and I give Stan McChrystal, General Stan McChrystal, a lot of credit for this, but his work and his relationship with both the Iraqis and with the Kurds and with our conventional counterparts, in particular Ray Odierno, who's now the chief of staff of the Army, we began to build these fusion cells because as we looked at the problem set in Iraq, we recognized that what was happening in Baghdad was in fact tied to what was happening in Mosul, which was tied to what was happening in Al-Anbar, which was tied to what was happening down in Basra. So we began to see a network, and we realized that as we were focused on Baghdad, if we didn't understand what was happening in Mosul, then we weren't going to understand the complete picture. We in the special operations world couldn't get the complete picture without being tied in with the Iraqis in this case and with the conventional forces that were on the ground and with the State Department and others that were part of this fusion cell. The concern uh, as we move away, and of course, uh, as we have moved away from Iraq and now we're drawing down in Afghanistan, how do you replicate the bringing together of the intelligence community, the State Department, the military, and anybody else that wants to participate in this? How, how do you replicate that uh, in order to ensure you don't lose the, the capability and the understanding of how to, to build these fusion cells? I think that is a problem. Uh, and I do think we've got to spend some time, whether it is pumping money into exercises uh, or taking every opportunity when we are forward deployed to do the best we can to create these fusion cells so that the intel and the operations continues to stay linked. Mm -hmm. All right. So if we can uh, follow up on that, because we were talking there about uh, battlefield innovations from uh, in theater in Iraq, particularly in the 2006-2007 window. But um, if we look at 2008-2009, um, al-Qaeda in Iraq was more or less on the ropes. They were certainly uh, set back quite a bit. But then recently, Americans have been kind of stunned to see this ISIS group emerge. Uh, so how, how do you account for the recent or maybe not so recent rise of ISIS? And how much of a threat are they to the homeland today? Yeah, well, I think uh, some of those questions I'll defer to, to General Clapper uh, in his Q&A piece. I think he has a better sense of that. But I can tell you that when we look at ISIS um, from an operator standpoint, uh, I watched ISIS grow from AMZ, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi. So Zarqawi we looked at as the beginning of AQI, al-Qaeda in Iraq. And, uh, and al-Qaeda in Iraq, and after Zarqawi's death in 2006, it continued on uh, through uh, Abu Umar al-Baghdadi and, uh, and others. And now you've got uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. So you have this kind of lineage that goes all the way back to really 2003, 2004 with, uh, with Zarqawi. So ISIS, as we know it, it really isn't a new phenomenon. Uh, clearly, the concern we have is that it, as it has grown, as it had sanctuary in Syria, and then as they begin to mobilize no longer as a pure terrorist organization but as a terrorist army and move across into Iraq and begin to bring really disenfranchised Sunnis into play, uh, they've grown into a, you know, a pretty formidable force in terms of a you – know, I'm reluctant to call them a terrorist army, uh, but they are a terrorist organization that is exceedingly large and has very many aspects of an army. And uh, also as we um, – hear me here uh, – Look at the uh, – referring to Bobby's question about all the battlefield innovations, some of these fusion cells integrating real-time intelligence collection with special operations and the, kind of the virtuous cycle of effectiveness there. Do you worry that as we're on the cusp of a, a uh, nearly complete drawdown and end of combat operations in Afghanistan uh, that – are we in danger of losing the institutional memory on those innovations? Well, I think the institutional memory uh, will remain in place. Certainly I can, I can speak on the special operations side. This has become such a part of how we do business. Uh, and, and by this, I mean the intelligence component of special operations or ground operations. 
everything begins with intelligence. And when we look at the technology that's out there, uh, and we talk about the capabilities of the sensors on the predators and the reapers and other systems that work uh, on our behalf, the ability to take that information and then through the classified network spread that information very, very rapidly to be able to analyze that information with one analyst who is sitting in Washington, D.C., one who is sitting in North Africa, one who is sitting off a ship uh, off the coast of Somalia, and all of them being able to look at the information, make judgments about it, put it into a report, and move that report. This has just become how we do business. And I think this uh, generation, at least, uh, again, within the special operations community, this generation that has grown up after 9-11, this is what they expect. And, you know, I don't know that we can ever go back to the old way. And I think if they begin to see that it atrophies, they will do the best they can to maintain those capabilities, again, whether it's in exercises or we have no lack of real-world operations going on. Admiral, we've been talking a lot about the uh, view from the ground up, but of course uh, the ODNI's creation was a story of, of within the Beltway deciding to create integration from the top down, as it were. And as Mike Allen's book, Blinking Red, really nicely conveys, one of the major friction points in getting to that place was concern on, the, on behalf of the warfighter, that, that the commander and that the operators in the field, people who were downrange, yeah might lose access that they otherwise would have to the national technical means or other, other forms of support. Um, based on your experience, how are we doing on that dimension now that we do have ODNI? Yeah, that was probably a fear, but it was a fear that was unrealized. Uh, we get better intelligence today than at any point in time, at least in my career. And, and I think a lot of that is, is the relationship of the intelligence community and all aspects of the intelligence community. And part of this, again, as we have networked and brought together the various elements within the intel community, what you don't get a lot of, you still have some of it, but you don't get the circular reporting that we used to get. So when you have kind of, when you have the stovepipes, you know, one agency would report something, another agency would report kind of the same thing, and then, and, but if you're on the ground, you're looking at it going, well, are these three different sightings of bin Laden, or is this the same sighting that somebody has then, again, reported on again and again and again? By having DNI and, and NCTC and the intel community be, being able to come together, on the tactical end of it, we, we get a report that is to some degree synthesized across the intel community, so the advice is the best and brightest from all elements of the, of the IC, as opposed to too many differing views. Now, again, it's good to get the differing views. Don't misunderstand me. But we know where the differences are now, whereas in the past, before DNI and before NCTC and before the relationship with the IC, I'm not sure we had that. The other aspect, I think, at the tactical level, when we were chasing bad guys in Iraq and Afghanistan, you always understood uh, from the operational standpoint the high-value targets you were going after in a particular province or in a district. What you didn't understand sometimes was, was the relationship of that individual to somebody potentially outside Afghanistan, the relationship of that individual to somebody in Pakistan. If you're in Iraq, to the relationship of somebody in Syria and in Kuwait and in China or in the United States. Those relationships uh, and understanding the network, I think the DNI and the entire IC process really helped improve that for the tactical operator. A lot of the issues we were dealing with was who's financing this individual that happens to be in a small district in southern Afghanistan. Well, we weren't always in a position to trace that. But by working with NSA, by working with CIA, by working with the other elements of the IC, you could begin to track this down and understand what the relationship was. And then once you understood what the relationship was, 
some element of the U.S. government or our uh, foreign partners could take action on that, cut off the funding, um, and, and potentially slow up this individual's uh, ability to operate, even in the district level. Makes sense. We can uh, step back and take a bigger picture look at America's defense capabilities and, and needs today. Uh, w- one of the other stories post 9-11, which you uh, lived and breathed and led, of course, was the great expansion in special operations forces and, and, and resources and, and capabilities and in the amount that our government uh, relies on special ops to be the tip of the spear. Um, and that's by and large very much been to the good. But also now that we're in this era of fiscal austerity and uh, other parts of the, de- the defense budget being cut back, now that you're out of uniform uh, and no longer heading SOCOM, uh, do you have any worries about uh, us relying too much on special ops to the detriment of conventional forces? Yeah, I think, you know, special operations has a, I think, a pretty well-defined niche. Um, you know, we can't stop the North Koreans from coming south. We can't keep the Straits of Malacca open. There are things that we can't do in the special operations community. And so our relationship with a conventional force with the intel community is absolutely vital uh, for the nation. But at the end of the day, um, you know, special operations is not the panacea for all the problems. We recognize that. Uh, Joe Votel, the guy that replaced me, understands that. I think the intelligence community and the policymakers understand that. But what you see in this particular conflict is the sorts of things that special operations brings to the fight happen to be, uh, you know, happen to be within the wheelhouse of this current conflict. So how do you build a partner capability with the Iraqi counterterrorism units that are out there now? Uh, where do you take a small group, uh, an ODA, a, an Operational Detachment Alpha, uh, Special Forces ODA, and put them on the ground in a country in Africa and help them work tough targeting issues? Uh, very cost-effective, small footprint, always, always in coordination and, and with the approval of the chief of mission, the ambassador there. Uh, so, and I, I think the other part of it is it's reversible. And this is an important concept, I think, to today's policymakers. If you take a brigade of the 82nd or you take the 173rd uh, and you put it someplace, it's a large footprint, and now you have signaled, uh, you know, U.S. intent in a very large way. If you take a platoon of SEALs or an A-team from the Green Beret or Air Force Special Tactics and you put them someplace, the signal is still there but it is much lower, uh, and again, uh, that helps the host nation. I think it helps our policymakers to be able to decide that if it wasn't the right path we were going down, then you're in a position to withdraw those forces pretty quickly and, uh, and chart another course. Okay, great. Well, Bobby, well, having that kind of calibrated capacity to, to set the level of the intervention draws my attention to something else, which is that sometimes the role of the military is, is entirely apart from what we've been talking about. And, and I'm, I'm thinking here, of course, this is kind of ripped from the headlines, but um, our deployment of, of the military to Africa to assist with the, the Ebola outbreak, um, to what extent do these sorts of missions mutually reinforce one another? And is that, is that part of how we should think about um, the, the uh, military's role in national power as, as more than just a kinetic force? Well, the one thing the military is very good at doing is planning and executing operations. So uh, I think they are, uh, to some degree, the go-to force because we have the capacity, uh, we have the capability. Now we have this force of tremendous young men and women who volunteered, uh, and most of whom who have fought and been in very complex situations. So when you have an Ebola outbreak in, in Africa, in West Africa, or you have a disaster, a typhoon uh, in the Philippines, 
it is well within the military's capability and capacity to be able to react to that. They can plan to the unknowns. They can plan to the knowns. Uh, they can bring a great capability to be able to do something in terms of humanitarian disaster or in the case of Ebola. The, again, not everything, but if it is a mission that is planable, that requires the kind of resources that the military brings, manpower, uh, intelligence, um, and again, health capabilities in the case of Ebola. Of course, we have the military has got a large number of medical ships and medical capability. So all that kind of comes contained in the United States military. So it makes for, uh, again, I think uh, an easy choice, but a good choice for a lot of these problems. Final question from us before we'll take a few from the, uh, from the audience here. Um, the focus of this conference these next few days is, of course, uh, intelligence and counterterrorism. And we certainly see the ongoing evolving terrorist threat. But uh, taking a bigger picture look, what are, there, what are other significant threats out there that you worry about? We've mentioned Ebola, um, Chinese adventurism in the, uh, in the Western Pacific, uh, Russian revanchism, um, other things, the debt? I don't know. So what are the, what are the kind of things that keep you up at night besides yeah, the UT system budget? Okay. You, you all right. right. Okay. Um, uh, Iowa State. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I do think this, the concern about ungoverned uh, states, you know, you begin to see more and more ungoverned states. My yeah, when, when you look at, at Syria and what ISIS and ISIL is bringing to the fight, uh, and you had asked earlier on whether I thought ISIS or ISIL was a direct threat to the homeland. Uh, and again, I, I'd have to defer to the intel professionals and what they're seeing today. I've been out of uniform for six weeks now, and even in six weeks, the intelligence changes dramatically. Um, I think the, the greater concern with groups like ISIS is not necessarily their direct threat to the United States homeland, but it is their threat to areas like Lebanon and Jordan and Israel and Iraq. And so you see this cascading effect across the Levant and that is a direct threat to U.S. national interest. So when you have these ungoverned areas, so when you ask what are my fears, it is ungoverned states, ungoverned areas, whether it is Somalia or whether it is you know, Mali from a year ago or whether it is Syria, these areas uh, create problems for us in the national, uh, I think, again, national security area. I, I used to tell my, my force there's no such thing as a local problem. Anybody believes that problems can be handled locally nowadays, I don't think they understand how the world works. There is no such thing as a local problem. Uh, I was in Tokyo about a year and a half ago, and I was sitting down with the chief of defense and the minister of defense, and at the time, uh, their number one issue was Algeria, because they had 10 Japanese hostages at the BP oil refinery. And, you know, halfway around the world, and this was their primary concern. So... Events that happen around the world that may not necessarily f directly affect the U.S. homeland, I think, are still a threat to our national security, and we're going to have to deal with them. All right. Well, we can take some uh, questions from the audience. We've got some uh, roving mics. So I'll, I'll moderate. Uh, any hands up for any, any questions for Admiral McRaven? There's, uh, there's one right there. Sorry, Charles. Sorry. And please identify yourself and keep it brief. Thanks. Yeah, I'm Joe Stafford, uh, former Foreign Service officer with, uh, with the State Department. Uh, Admiral, thank you very much for your presentation. Question, uh, the fact that the Iraqi army in which we had invested such resources uh, collapsed so readily in Mosul and uh, in particular in Iraq. Do you see that as an intelligence failure? How should we understand uh, what, what happened there? Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks. Uh, great question. I, I don't see it as an intelligence failure. Uh, I mean, I think there's some things you can know 
And then there's just some things that are very difficult to understand, and intent is one of those. You know, you can't divine what an army is going to do. Uh, I mean, I, I am, I'm very proud to say that when we looked at the counterterrorism force that we in the special operations community trained, they in fact held up under the pressure from ISIS and continue to do a pretty good job. But when you look at the size of the Iraqi army, the composition of the Iraqi army, and to a large degree the failure of the central government under Maliki to embrace the army in a broader sectarian mode, if you look at all of those, then I think we probably could have seen that there were fractures in the army that we, that we should have seen, but you couldn't necessarily say that that was all, all of a sudden going to lead to a complete collapse of the army. Um, so I don't know how you could have looked at that as an, an intelligence failure. One, you have to kind of be on the ground. You have to be spending a lot of time with armies. One of the issues that and it gets back to the by, with, and through, when you have the opportunity to spend time with an army, you can begin to understand where their weaknesses are. But you have to continue to spend time with them. When you leave those armies, uh, when you leave those forces that you've been training, and you no longer have an understanding of what the leadership looks like nowadays, how their logistics mechanism is working, are they getting good intelligence, are they getting paid, all those sort of issues that every army has to have in order to be resilient. When you don't have people on the ground that are seeing that, it's very difficult to be able to convey that, those problems back up to the intel community uh, to recognize it as an intelligence failure and intelligence success. Uh, Lawrence Wright with the New, York, New Yorker. Um, the president recently asked uh, the CIA to produce a, a document about arming insurgencies in the past and uh, it demonstrated a very poor spotty record. What's different about arming the Syrian insurgents and how is the intelligence community taking that history into account? Yeah, I, I think the report itself, I think, sp focused specifically on the agencies, if I'm not mistaken, the agencies arming of surrogate forces. The agency does a magnificent job of building surrogate forces on a very uh, small level for specific missions. And, uh, I mean, hopefully John would agree with that. But when you start talking about an industrial scale, you really have to combine what the agency brings and what the military brings. Uh, you know, we in the military, again, have been building our allied forces for a very long time whether it is surrogate forces or whether it is mainstream military forces. So I think you have to be able to take both of them into account. And I think the report, again, I haven't read the report, but if you combine what the, the intel community has done and what the military has done in concert with each other and the forces that they have built, I actually think you'd find the track records pretty good. Uh, again, not having seen the, the, the uh, article, I can tell you from experience, and I, I can't talk specifically about units that they have trained, but I can tell you, some of the finest units I have worked with in combat were trained by the intel community. And they have upheld, you know, or, or uh, held up to incredible scrutiny. Now, we, we had back in the 80s, certainly you can go back and look at some of the units we were training in Latin America and, and ask yourself, was that the right thing to do? I think it gets back to the earlier discussion about if you don't tie that training to an understanding of the civil-military relationships and the importance of those civil-military relationships, then I think that's where you get into trouble. If you go in with your eyes wide open, 
that you're going to train the force to be a competent, capable military force, whether it is a paramilitary force or a surrogate force, but it has military characteristics, good order and discipline, good logistics, good intelligence, and understanding of the civil-military relationships. If you build it that way, I think if you went back and looked at the units where we have done that, I think the record would be a little bit different. And I, I should say, uh, uh, by the way, I promise no more book plugs, but since Larry Wright is here, he wrote the single best book I've read on Al-Qaeda, The Looming Tower. So very good, Larry. Larry didn't ask me to do that. But, uh, he's a, anyway, and he's an, an, a local Austin treasure. So anyway, so all right, let's see. Is there another one on the side over here? So, uh, here's one. Mark Jabelli, sorry. Still looking at Mark Jabelli. Mark is going to ask the question. Okay. Uh, Admiral, thank you for being here. Uh, my name is Mark Jabelli. I'm a senior and also Mitchum Naval ROTC unit. Um, carrying forward Dr. Inbone's question about uh, sort of the capacities within the U.S. military. Um, what is the sort of force structure that you think we'll need to counter the threats that, uh, that, that are looming? Um, should we continue building capacity to humanitarian support? Do we need large conventional forces? Um, what is the military that this generation of officers is going to be entering the sort of capacities that they need? Yeah, I think it's the military that the American people want. And, and that may uh, sound like I'm evading the question, but the American people have got to decide through their elected representatives what is the military they want. Because as we have walked into sequestration, which was brought on by you know, an act of Congress, uh, this means that the American people have decided the sequestration is all right because their elected officials have allowed that to continue apace. And sequestration, of course, has cut our military significantly and will continue to cut the military significantly. We'll lose 100,000 men and women in the U.S. Army over the course of about 8 to 10 years. That's a sizable cut in our conventional force. Uh, do I think we still need a large conventional force? Absolutely. I always have. And in fact, I've, I've always said that. As I mentioned earlier, you know, special operations in particular, we have a very niche uh, capability. But, you know, again, if the North Koreans come south, you are going to need a large conventional army to do something about it. If the Russians continue to move west, you may need a large conventional force to do something about it. That's a large conventional army, a very, very capable air force, a capable navy with aircraft carriers that can have the mobility to get to the, the targets uh, quickly. So any belief that we can continue to be a world's power, superpower, without having a large conventional Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marine Corps, and a capable special operations force, uh, I think is mistaken. Um, now, the question then becomes, what is the right size? Uh, so I think as we have looked at downsizing, and the military commanders, I can tell you, uh, my time with the, the Joint Chiefs, uh, they absolutely understood that as we drew down in Iraq and as we were drawing down in Afghanistan that we needed to resize the force. But we are resizing the force rather rapidly. Uh, we are resizing the force uh, probably in a less than optimum way. And I think a lot of this is driven by the budget uh, with less emphasis on, on the strategy than on the budget. So, but, but again, this, is, uh, this lies squarely with the American people to do something about it. If you think you like the military that you've got today, to be able to handle the missions that are out there, whether it's from Ebola or whether it's from humanitarian relief or disaster relief or fighting ISIS or anyone else, then we're going to have to pay for that military. And that's, again, that's up to the American people and their elected representatives. Yes, right here.
Daniel White, uh, Austin resident. My question for Admiral McRaven is, back when we had Zarqawi cornered in a standalone building surrounded by American troops, did we elect to kill him instead of capturing him for the intelligence trove that he and his associates would have been? Doesn't that tend to show that Zarqawi was in fact a media celebrity created and Zarqawi the mediocrity had to die in order to keep from embarrassing questions from being asked? <laughs> Well, that's a broad question. Um, no, it's a very specific question. Yeah. So uh, the issue of Zarqawi. Um, uh, terrorist organizations are built a lot on the, um, the leader of that terrorist organization. So if you have a guy like Zarqawi, who I, as I watched him, you know, we would see his footprints as he moved around the battlefield. Uh, we didn't like Zarqawi, but I got to tell you, he had a following for a reason. He did what good military commanders would do. He got out amongst his fighters and spent time with them. He had a charisma. So when you talk about the value of killing Zarqawi versus the intelligence, a lot of this was how do you kill the charisma? Because the charisma is what gives a terrorist organization energy to move forward. So at the end of the day, Zarqawi needed to be either captured or killed. He wasn't an easy guy to get. Uh, I missed him in 2005, and he went on for another year before we got him in 2006. And in that one year's time, thousands of innocent Iraqis died at the hands of al-Qaeda in Iraq. Hundreds of Americans probably died at the hands of al-Qaeda in Iraq because we were chasing, of course, not only Zarqawi, but Zarqawi and his, and his, uh, his henchmen. So uh, sometimes you have to take out these charismatic leaders in order to buy down the threat or the motivation of that terrorist organization. Well, uh Admiral, if I can take the uh, interrogator's prerogative of a final question here. Um, to get the, uh, uh, when you were with us in May, you uh, offered uh, 10 very helpful pieces of life advice for our students, which I guess one or two people have watched on YouTube. Um, now you've got this captive audience here of uh, students and faculty and other uh, concerned citizens. Any further advice for us? I hope we're all making our beds. That's right. Yeah, if I could just get my kids to make the beds, I'd feel like it was... Uh, you know, I think what I'd leave you with today is, uh, and I was at a, a conference a couple of weeks ago, and uh, some young lady, a, a student, uh, stood up and said, you know, what do you think about this generation? Because sometimes I think this generation uh, gets some bad press. And I said, I have never been more impressed with the young men and women that are, that are coming into the military today. Uh, they are just magnificent. And if the student body reflects those young men and women, uh, We're, we're going to be just fine. Uh, incredible, incredible uh, Americans. They volunteered after 9-11. They have continued to volunteer. They die at a rate that uh, they probably shouldn't be dying at, and yet they continue to volunteer and show up every morning to do their job. And I think it's not a reflection just of the armed forces. I mean, everywhere I go and I visit with the students and I visit with the, these young men and women on the streets, they don't look... Anything like my generation did. They've got tattoos and earrings, and they listen to music I've never heard of. Um, but that just reflects the fact that I guess I'm getting old. But i got to tell you, they're phenomenal. So when we wonder about the future of this country, we should not worry at all. The, again, the young men and women coming in to their own today are as good as I have ever seen. And I think when history looks back at this generation – they will say it was this century's greatest generation by far. Amen. All right. It's a great note to conclude on. Thank you very much.